In this episode, I'm joined by Robert Podgurski, who has been writing and practicing magic for over 30 years. We discuss his book, The Sacred Alignments and Sigils, Angelic Magic, Renaissance Thought, and Modern Methods of Sigilization. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support Emetics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. Bob Podgurski? Uh, thanks for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Glad to be here today. So before we jump in um, about your book and about, I think we're going to be talking about your book, The Sacred Alignments and Sigils, Angelic Magic, Renaissance Thought, and Modern Methods of Sigilization, which is a, um, a an extremely interesting sort of personal account of something you call the grid sigil, uh, but it also includes so many references to the occult. It's practically uh, sort of spilling out of the book. In a, in a very fun way. But before we jump into that, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what it is you, you do. Well, I've been working at magic and metaphysics, yoga, in some related form or another for over 40 years. Um, my actual earliest introduction to any type of magic would have been through poetry um, and through the... Uh, just through the simple sounds of words, uh, the music, uh, the, uh, as Pound called it, melopoeia uh, of language uh, at a very early age. Um, and then as time progressed, I, and I became aware and cognizant of the occult, uh, and especially through Agrippa has so much, uh, he focuses on Orphe, the Orphic tradition and Ovid, uh, that I was uh, pleased and uh, very happy to see that connection was fleshed out in some shape or form. And so uh, my interest in, in poetry and literature has always been a backdrop to the rest of what I've been doing in the occult. Uh, and much of what interests me uh, is spontaneous, being able to work with spontaneous forms of generated magic. Uh, ritual is important, but as you'll see, and perhaps we'll discuss it some, ritual is something that becomes an all-inclusive and far more expansive term than, uh, in my opinion, in my observations, than the traditional uh, mat, uh, hermetic or, or, or occult definition would warrant. Um, and then I've spent a fair amount of time. It's not just magic interests me, but the history of magic as well, uh, intellectual history, because I don't see any way to separate out the two. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it seems to me that it seems to me that one can pursue magic either through practical terms or contemplatively, in which case I think uh, an intellectual pursuit can be geared as such to give one fairly interesting insights and magical results if you approach it as a form of, of nana yoga, as uh, union through philosophic speculation. Um, and so those are just a few things to give you a basic idea. I've jotted a, a few things down, but before we jump in on that, um, I do have to ask you the hermetics question. So you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, currently, and, and I guess it would depend on what day of the week you asked me this question. Yeah, the same. answer would vary. But currently, 
I guess it would be, well, it'd have to be, um, well, of course, John D., Austin Spare, and uh, Mary Butts. I know of D and Spare, so who's Mary, who's Mary Butts? Mary Butts is a fairly interesting figure out of the... The reason I throw her in there, too, because you have Spare has uh, D for a background, a scholarly background in traditional magic, and uh, the trivium, the quadrivium, very, you know, the, the, the early modern period approach to learning and, and that eclectic approach. Spare for the uh, freeform sort of magic uh, and, and sigilization. But Mary Butts uh, was a writer uh, who came into her own during the 20s and 30s. She wrote a fair amount of fiction. Uh, she's best known for her short stories. Uh, she she was from England, uh, and her uh, grandfather was Thomas Butts, and that is a name you might know on the periphery. Thomas Butts was one of William Blake's patrons, and so Mary Butts she grew up in Salterns, and so her interest in magic was generated at an early age, walking around with uh, within her backyard, right next to Neolithic stone circles. And the house was filled with orig- Blake originals. <laughs> Can you imagine that growing up as a kid having that to look at instead of your average fairy tale book? And then so Mary Butts eventually, as I said, she was best known for her fiction. Her Taverner novels are very important, Armed with Madness and the Death of Felicity Taverner, are two very important novels. But where she comes into the magic, she comes directly into the magic saying she actually went to Chefalu. Uh, to hang out with Crowley there at the uh, at the colony. And when Crowley was working on magic and theory and practice, she gave the draft a go, uh, handed it back to him. And at first he was sort of wrangled about it. But when he looked at it over a while, he, uh, to his credit, he broke down and said, if it wasn't for her, I, I would have never been able to generate it the way I did. So she actually gave him some fairly key suggestions for composing magic and theory and practice. Now, the interesting thing about Mary Butts in the end, I was reading, I've been reading her journals uh, and she mentions that to her magic with a K to her wasn't as appealing because it was too direct approach. What interested Mary Butts the most was wandering, meandering about like a kid through the woods, uh, discovering, as she called them, plural magics things that caught the eye, fairy uh, or fae, as the term goes. Uh, And so that's why I would throw Mary Butts in there, because she's coming from a completely different and intuitive, uh, creative school and approach to magic. So what would be the conversation or sorry, what would be the um, (laughs) theme that you'd like to to hear those three people talk about? Is there a question that you think that has perhaps been bothering you that you think they could answer? Well, I think I'd want to keep it fairly wide open. Uh, I would just want to, uh, I think going off of what I mentioned about Mary Butts, I would just like to see them discuss what their interpretation of what actually, just what magic means fundamentally to them, because you're coming from such varied schools and timeframes. I think it'd be great fun amongst other things. So what do you make of, um, Butts' idea of Crowley's magic with a K, which I've joked about with John Michael Greer before, the idea of magic with a K changing things. 
do you um do you think it fun- fundamentally changes things and sort of uh alters the meaning of magic in a in a negative light i don't know that it alters it in an in a negative light, but it is a very specific approach. Um, The idea of bringing about change through uh, focused direction of the will. It's a very intentional, it's a very solar phallic approach, I think. Whereas, and and so, and it's always up to the individual. I find for myself, I, I, I mean, I used to stick to the Crowleyan formula like glue, but over time it became clear to me that certain things that 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 if one is, you know, uh, for instance, um, I mean, as Crowley would have been with, with the invocation of poor park crate or the or the babe in the egg, if one is actually consciously receding into that space of the childlike intuitive phase, it seems to me that constantly. Well, it's almost like the magic with a K is almost like putting the cart before the uh, and put it is always putting the horse in front of the cart, whereas magic without a K coming from the realm of, of Mary Butts or or maybe, uh, you know, as many poets may approach it is is allowing for a discovery of what the will itself can dictate. I'm, I'm not. What I'm getting at is, I'm not always sure. I'm, I'm not totally convinced, uh, e- even of my own intentions. Half the time, when I think about the fact what Nietzsche talked about, and I brought up in, in numerous other discussions with people, Nietzsche was very keen to to bring up the fact that a lot of people confuse the commandeering of thought and action with the will. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a good point there. By saying it's like I, it's my will to go get a job, and it's like, well, you know, this is sure it may be your intent, you may be commandeering that intent, but is that actually your will? Is that actually your ingrained, uh, somatic, you know, unified somatic and spiritual intention wrapped up in one? Is is that definitely what it is? And I'm always a little bit hesitant as I'm always because I, I think contacting and, 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 and fleshing out the will is a progressive activity. If it isn't, if somebody's in a state of stasis, then I think uh, things are going to things will go stale. Things are potentially going to hit sort of that uh, that 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 vacuum. Uh, as it were, where where somebody is sucked into machinations of, of the intellect. I think that, so what I'm getting at there is I think the will and focused intent sometimes are very distinct things, can be somewhat divergent uh, for good and for worse. <laughs> Do you think that's why a lot of people um, get the, the sort of the, you know, um, Love is the whole of the law. Love under will. They get the wrong impression with regards to the Thelema that it's just this individualist task that you just go out and do what you want, and it doesn't really matter the percussions, which would be that would be intent. Whereas for Crowley, will is this whole of a thing, right? Exactly. And I think and, and Crowley, lest we forget, was a very well-read philosopher. Um, I think what 
Schopenhauer and, and what the Neoplatonists earlier come up with the idea of the world will. And Gurdjieff was aware of that as well, uh, probably more so than anybody else. Uh, to understand how one interfaces, one's will interfaces with the world will. It's sort of a dance that occurs. It's a Taoist approach, which I think is the most helpful way to look at that. And so I don't think it can always be this one is at the helm steering constantly, that there has to be, as Crowley was so well aware, there has to be a certain sort of a vacuous state, a passive approach. One has to be receptive. I guess it's the difference between picking a destination and keeping one's eye open for signposts to see where they may be, to be aware for, of those signposts and take their direction, take their lead as the world will is essentially dictating possibly to some extent. Um, and that makes me think of, of Ludwig uh, Klodges. You had David Beth on the show recently, and, and I have to give a big thanks to David for all the all of what he's done for the studies uh, regarding Klodges, which has been, you know, for the most part, uh, taking a backseat to so much in recent years. But I think that comes into play distinctly there. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, I actually sent, sent David the same reference because it reminds me so much of um, a philosopher called Michel Serre has this idea of the helmsman where um, you can be a really good helmsman, but you can never rebel against the sea in total. There's there's still going to be limitations of what you can and can't do in the sea. And it seems to me that's the same thing you're talking about there with the world will, that there's there's only so much and so far you can rebel against or, or um, should we say, project your will against something. But whereas the world will, you know, as I said, there's, there's always going to be a limit there. Yeah. Yeah. You have a choice. You can either go with the current, as you mentioned there, or, you know, you can try and swim upstream all the more power to you. <laughs> I mean, against the current. Yeah. You can battle it out all you want. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just the, um, the idea there. That it's like you, you can become adept at being able to understand what the current is doing and swimming up the current, of course, is the great metaphor of you can, you can do it, but you need to have a serious amount of energy to be able to sustain that for a long time. Yeah, that's right. And and hence the, the Taoist approach, you either, you know, are you going to just stand there hell or high water and say, I'm going to do my will no matter what? Or are you going to look at the way that your will interfaces with your environment, mm -hmm. uh, with your the simple things just with the air you breathe, things like that are uh, param of paramount importance, I think, in this whole process. So you mentioned there at the start um, your basis and sort of foundation in metaphysics. With regard to Klagas, do you think then that this world will for Klagas and perhaps for yourself is the the metaphysical basis in that you understand that you just, there is a world will, but you can still um, enjoy and find truth just from the phenomenal images of reality. And there isn't really a reason to uh, revere the spirit, as Klagas would say. Oh, yeah, uh, most definitely. I mean, Claudius, for me, the, the main thing I walk away from him, just going with initial gut reaction, the whole biocentric approach. Uh, you know, at an early time, he was one of the first people to say, OK, we've got to quit cutting down forests at the rate we're going. It was back in the 40s, you know. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was pretty he was pretty much up on his game there. But yes, uh, a, a very basic uh, attention to, and, and, and this is with, you know, the, all, all the aspects of yoga, be it bhakti, hatha, 
or whatever, the union of mind, uh, a union of mind with will, with body based on practice, but it's, um, or, no, or, no, or no matter the approach, but it's, it's those very basic physical drives and, and, and natural environment, the cues of the natural environment, uh, there's a world of uh, wealth of information to be, to be found right there. One really needs to really go much further, pick up a bunch of books. You know, it's all, I, recently I've been rereading uh, the uh, Novalis's Novices uh, of Saïs. What a brilliant book. And he makes this fantastic observation. He mentions at one point he's talking about, the, one of the students is talking about the fact, okay, studying nature. Uh, what are we really doing? How does one engage with it? And he and uh, one of them makes the observation that you can uh, understand nature is one thing, and it's my and it's something that's not even that really can be articulated well. Just like somebody who learns to play guitar by ear, uh, you talk to someone's, oh, well, what are you doing there? Well, you do this. <laughs> you know, it's it's not something they can always explain. They can show you, but they can't necessarily explain it. But the thing that also, he said, there's a big discrepancy between an actual knowledge or wisdom of nature and the interpretation thereof. I think it's very easy to confuse the two. I mean, I, I know I get caught up in the chase because I enjoy reading and studying up on the subject so much. But I do. I always have to take a step back occasionally and ask myself, what is what I'm actually, you know, is this? Is this text or this practice conveying something of an understanding of it, or is it dealing with an intellectualized interpretation of nature? And you can apply the same to magic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, Foster, Foster Wallace has a great quote on that where he says that you can, uh, it's the same as putting a crushing up a rose and putting it through a spectrometer to, to tell yourself why it smells good. So you're completely <laughs> avoiding. The, the 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 scent you know the, the the sort of inherent sense that you're meant to be you're meant to be understanding that thing from and understanding of course is the incorrect word but this this sort of goes back to a uh, strangely enough to what to Michel Serre again where he he actually mentions a, a hierarchy of the senses so that we yes. we're entirely fixated on vision and then things such as what well, taste is completely at the bottom and it, and, sure. and every every sense is explained via the the via language and it just wraps everything up and sort of destroys it in a certain sense. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I've, um, I'm trying to, who is it? Um, the Neoplatonist Synesius makes a really good point. Uh, and, it, and it's something we all know inherently, but the way he articulates is, you know, the senses, uh, you know, the, through the eyes, the ears, the nose, these are, these are se sensory apparatus these aren't the actual organs of the sense the organs of the senses senses are internal it's that interface between the senses and the mind that's really the seat of the senses mm -hmm. and i think d d was particularly i mean because of that whole thing. d lest we forget d d's library so many people make the point that he had one of the largest paracelsian libraries in in uh in all of europe but Next to that, in number of books was guess who? Aristotle. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's a reason for this, but no, he was he was keenly aware of empiricism, but also the inherent problem with empirical data. 
that if this in that if your data is dependent upon less than perfect senses, <laughs> then one must realize that and take into account that, that that the information that's being relayed itself is obviously tainted by that very instrument itself, or potentially tainted by it. One thing I want to jump back to is something you interesting you said earlier about um, spontaneous magic as opposed to yes. a sort of ritualistic form. Um, mm-hmm. What do you see? What do you see is that I mean, obviously the key difference is quite clear, but how would you sort of explain that difference? And what how would you understand spontaneous magic? Okay, well, uh, spontaneous is just when you know. We're, uh, I guess it's best to go back to the childlike thing, uh, an urge. An urge comes upon someone in an an inexplicable one. How to articulate it, how to do something with it. So if you have enough tricks in your bag, then you can harness those urges, Uh, which is not to say that the urge itself, I am not going to go so far as to say that that urges as they pop up are are pure, unadulterated expressions of whatever. Uh, I mean, to do so. Uh, I guess, you know, Trump's followers, you know, he says what he, you know, says he, he speaks what's on his mind. Well, so do five-year-olds, too. <laughs> doesn't necessarily make them profound or anything. It makes them awfully irrational. But there, there is an energy in that irrationality. And I think that's where just as a common uh, for most of your audience, that's where sigils come in. So good. If you have a handful of sigils waiting to go, you can just harness that energy, that urge, and you can channel it into a conduit into the subconscious to harness it, or as a gateway into understanding it. Uh, because in the, uh, my one essay in the back of Sacred Alignments, Kofada Gestalt and Sigil Inversion, where I talk about uh, using mapping, ma- making magical maps based upon how you walk, how you move. Uh, I gave a workshop last February in uh, San Diego. And as I was giving the workshop, I realized, well, it's not even just w- making a map of how you walk throughout the day, how your mo- where your mind's moving. That's worth making a map of, too. Because to say that uh, extraneous thoughts are something... See, I, I, if we take a really hardcore yogic Vajrayana or Hatha yogic approach, where one is just always buckled down on uh, Dharana and Dhyana, being able to focus the mind on one object and exclude all other thoughts, empty. If, if one takes that hardline approach, then one, I think, uh, risks the, the chance of necessarily uh, blocking out or, or not being able to take advantage of a cognizance, cognizance of these urges or plays of thought, play of the mind. And now back to answer your question a little bit more specifically, one of the other things I've talked about. So if we use that walking meditation of how or how the mind itself has preambled out through the morning, let's say that day you had a ritual planned and you're doing as many of us do. We might do yoga or we might do some sort of preparatory work to get one within the mode or spirit of conducting that ritual. What I have contended when I talk about these uh, about doing one of these magical maps of how the mind works throughout the day. Uh, so if if you talk about okay, well I do this and I do that and I do this uh, I do this certain type of prayama against me in a certain state. But is that all there is to it? And I'm thinking about 
the magical circle, the figurative one. Well, then what I bring up is what about what it is that what did you do before you sat down into that concerted act of prayana? Is that not part of the ritual too? Hence the whole idea, and this comes down to a very basic thing. I mean, uh, uh, what Milton talked about with Copernicus, Copernicus the circle is broken. Uh, if we look at things in terms of, of a defined, delineated circle, then a circle, as, we, uh, as I think we all know, it actually it, um, it contains, but it also blocks an awful lot out. So the more one allows, uh, gives one's uh, mind a way to uh, ramble and to wander creatively, then we get a sense of how expansive this magical circle actually is, that it's only delineated by perhaps, uh, it could be delineated by, by fear, <laughs> something as simple as that. Uh, because freedom's an awful, awfully terrifying thing when it comes down to it for those of us who haven't had much of it or <laughs> allowed it ourselves a taste of it. <laughs> so you briefly, you briefly mentioned scissors there. And uh, even though they're, they're sort of fairly, they can be fairly, fairly basic and beginner in terms of occultism, how would you, obviously you've spent a long time with them and the grid sigil was something that sort of, um, as I understand it, appeared to you. Um, but how would, just to begin, how would you sort of, explain sigils to those who, who don't know what they are? Well, sigil, in very fundamental terms, uh, symbols, I would start with what's most recognizable. Symbols are, are what the conscious mind relates to, can relate to and interpret, such as um, letters in an alphabet, for instance, or uh, uh, pictorial images such as those found in a tarot deck, things that we can look at. You see a skull, you think of death, etc. Things where the mind can freely associate on a somewhat uh, uniform level, where there where there tends to be a uniformity of interpretation between uh, an audience fairly widespread. So those uh, so symbols work in that realm. Sigils, on the other hand are something that the subconscious relates to, so that they become much more idiosyncratic. They are something that, well, a, a, a way to think of it is that symbols, the mind uses its energy, uses its mental energy to make meaning of the world, whether it's by, you know, a symbol of seeing the mailman come up to the mailbox and drop something off a package, you've been waiting for a package, so you automatically interpret that as, that package you've been waiting for. Um, and so the mental energy goes into the act of interpretation. Sigils are a means whereby instead of that interpretative or ratiocinative act, we take the mental energy and harness it for, for manifesting desire. Okay. And so spares, uh, description, age-old description, uh, said, for example, I desire the strength of a tiger. Say you would take the, the letter, you would write that out, I desire the strength of the tiger, cross out all the vowels, look at all the consonants that repeat, and then cross out those consonants and what we are left, take the remaining consonants, slap them together into something that bears little or no resemblance to that written out statement that the mind can relate to. That becomes your sigil. So, 
Spear suggested that one focus on that sigil during times of great stress or great elation. Uh, the sigil then absorbs that energy, and when one focuses on it and allows it to fade into consciousness, that it allows the subconscious to take over. And the sigil does its work by the opposite of what we do with symbols. We want to retain sigils. One wants to forget. Uh, I was, uh, as Jim Morrison said, learn to forget. And that's a lot of what it's about. Uh, spare system and the use of sigils is an act of non-doing. It's running counter to the actual diachronic linear mode of thinking looking for an end result just a cognitive result where sigils can lead to an actual physical manifestation so um you're talking about uh spear sorry uh, yes which which writer sorry excuse me spears the surname what, what who's the who's the writer Oh, Austin Osmond Spear. Oh, oh, oh Spear. Okay, okay. That's Austin um, Osmond Spear, excuse me. That's okay. Yeah. I just, I just, uh, <laughs> sure. just pronunciation. Since then, has there been much um, evolution of, of sigilization in ultra alternate ways that we can, we can, we can do this process? Sure. Uh, I mean, the sky has become the limit with it anymore. I mean, people, it's become such a fad thing. Uh, people have done workshops where they make them out of chocolate so that you can actually eat them, uh, which isn't bad. It's an, a, a way of actually ingesting it. So might as well use the body in the process. Uh, there's been the use of oral or, 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 or auditory sigils. Uh, I know uh, that was something Genesis P.O. Ridge was very keen on harnessing and making use of. Um, and then uh, one of the uh, one of the best uh, re uh, writers to deal with specific on the basics of it, uh, Jan Fries and his visual magic does some wonderful things about with sigils. Uh, as I mentioned, that one formula of writing, uh, of composing a sigil through that process of writing out a statement Whereas Freeze talks about just maybe looking at an image in front of you uh, or a picture of something and part of it catches your eye, you isolate it and you make that image, that that isolated aspect of the image into a sigil itself. Uh, so it's it is a the the thing that I find it and back to our, uh, what we're talking about, spontaneous magic, that the important thing about it, it has become a self-tailored and a self-tailoring approach. It is something that one is able to actually use one's idiosyncrasies, penchants, interests, quirks, and harnessing them uh, so that it becomes a self-directing thing. Uh, I, when I've given a few workshops, some people have said, well, I don't know where to start. And I said, well, that's a great sigil. What sigil, what sigil should I work with? Or, or what is it I should do with sigils is a great sigil to, uh, uh, is a great concept or desire to, to formulate a sigil from. And it can just take off from there. Uh, one can use, one can just basically start from ground zero, nothing, and allow, if, if one is open enough to the process, can just, you know, allow oneself to be uh, whisked along through the entire process without any external assistance. That's what I love about it. So how would you explain your, your grid sigil? Well, the grid sigil, um, as I mentioned in parts of the book, uh, especially in uh, uh, Sigil Inversion and Clefotha Gestalt. So far, we've been uh, 
what I've mentioned is, you know, it's the process that's been formulated desire, sigil, and looking for a result. Whereas the grid sigil, when I perceived it was something that this basically worked in, in reverse, I had, I was basically in working within very basic uh, Enochian magic and lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, just working with the four archangels. I knew something was afoot. I didn't know what. And I just used uh, a formula of being inflamed with desire and focusing with every bit of passion I had on something that I knew was trying to speak to me. So base, instead of sending, as I talked about, once the sigil's formulated, one sends it into the subconscious, basically what I was working with was working with meditation, with dream states, dream consciousness, especially uh, deep sleep, um, delta waves. And when I was gain and, and lucid dreaming, and when I gained access at that point, I basically opened up my mind and allowed uh, to see, uh, allowed myself to see what it is that I could see. And, ba and what I found is that that sigil actually came projected through that state of consciousness where I was. And the key thing is where I was not directing anything where I was in a willless condition, uh, which I think is important for anybody who works with any sort of oracular type of magic or states of consciousness. That's the key thing. No interference allows for a far more sublimated and pure type of vision. And, and do you have practical steps to allowing yourself to be overcome in this way? Or is it sort of a, a slow process of meditations? Well, it's a con it's a combination of all the above. Um, as I mentioned, when I was doing, I was fairly young when I started this whole process, I was, uh, about 18. So, uh, speaking of the somatic process with hormones raging and physical energy, uh, I was just brimming with it. So I was focusing that upwards. It's good to have that in your favor. Uh, it, uh, I think it tends to facilitate, uh, uh, the passion, the verb for the whole process. And, and I think, that, and I'm not sure that that is something that can be taught. You either have the enthusiasm to a certain degree or you don't. I think that's the one, that is one sort of unspoken, uh, or, or almost unlearnable, uh, component, uh, of the process. Uh, the other thing, very just extremely basic things, uh, of, of prayana of doing breathing constant, uh, 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 where it becomes a habit where it's constant all day long. And somebody asked me uh, once when we were talking about discussion of meditation and I, and I call Crowley's old dictum, neglect not the dawn meditation. I call it the dawning meditation because to me, once you start, I don't see that it actually ends throughout the entire day. Uh, so it's to be able to prolong it. Um, and, the other reason for the importance of the dawn or dawning meditation is that if you can get yourself into a receptive state first thing in the morning where the gap between dream, between waking and sleep, where you can whittle that down to where you can actually work in that in-between state, the more that you can generate, the more, the more that one is actually able to get into that phase of, uh, of working out of the trance of the everyday world that we're in. 
uh, or, or the, uh, uh, oh, as Gurdjieff put it, the Kunda buffer, the inertia of Maya, the inertia of the clothing which is given to form, uh, which is literally what Maya means. I'm always hesitant to say Maya is illusion. It's not necessary. That's not the direct uh, uh, definition of it. It's actually more akin to Maya is the clothing that is given to the formless so that it allows the mind for something to grapple with. Um, uh, it allows us to get through the day and to function. So, uh, but that dawning meditation, working at that level, the one more one can prolong it and through breathing is, is a fairly simple thing. Uh, it's amazing how psychoactive one can keep oneself. I mean, when I was fairly young and first going through a number of these things, I was working with psychotropics. Um, and but when I perceived the grid sigil, I was not I, I, I was not under the influence, but I was using as, as a stepping stone. Uh, over and it took me time to realize that through just through simple things like breathing or sex magic that one could put oneself into a psychoactive condition and a much more manageable one uh, uh, to a certain extent depending um, but yeah so that those are just a few aspects of of how I would suggest one actually goes about. It's the rudiments, it's the basics. It's easy to lose track. I have to remind myself constantly. I, uh, I'm, I'm always sort of jumping ahead of myself, and then I say, "Get back to breathing." <laughs> Simple things like that, the pranayama and the and and dharana, just focusing on one object. Uh, because Crowley made that uh, a fairly important observation that dharana is the stepping stone to samadhi. So where would you, where would you advise people to start with, with learning to breathe? Not many people know how to breathe, it seems. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's important to, because every, because I, I think each person, everybody's physiology is so different that it's important to experiment. Uh, I would suggest learning yogic breathing or you uh, learning Reiki and Oregon breathing learning and, and, and playing around with them and see what you feel comfortable with. See what actually works with you because it's the test of time. I think that's most important. And, and far be it for me to actually say exactly because there's different schools. There's this one, there's a certain thought within yoga that you have to have a guru. There's another school that's like, there is no such thing as a guru. So I think it's up to each person. I am not. Uh, I am not opposed to either approach because I'm always learning. When I was in California, I was taking some yoga classes. I was amazed at what I. I'm, boy, uh, I certainly needed that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I. I think with the breathing, it's just important. What once once you pick a method, though, you need to stick with it for a good while. Uh, I think it's important. You just can't rush with it and see what happens within a day. You need to really stick with it. Uh, it it's always the test of the time and it's patience. Uh, there, there's definitely no quick fix formula for this, for getting it right. Just jumping back to something you said there about the, the trance of the everyday. In what way do you think that trance manifests itself in that we're all, we're all within a basic trance? Within a basic trance, you said uh, you called it the trance. Trance, trance yes. of the, the everyday. Trance. Uh huh. Well, ah, Mary Butts. 
great essay if you get a chance, Tracks for Unbelievers. I highly recommend it. She just talks, I love it. And, and, and it's formed sort of the basis for my discussion sometimes when I'll talk about, uh, when I'm giving a talk about magic and I hear people, I'm not into ritual magic. And my rejoinder is, okay, when you get up in the morning, do you have a routine? Do you make coffee? Do you do this? Do you do that? And if they answered yes, well, then you're doing some form of magic. And magic and habit are all trance-inducing. Uh, let's just think about it. If you get, if you start your day in a meditation, uh, you're definitely affecting a number of things: your biorhythms, brain waves, you name it. Even if you're not doing that, even if you just jump out of bed and grab a, uh, a double squeeze uh, espresso, you're definitely affecting your mind and body as well. The difference being one is being conducted with some attempt. I'm not saying it is exactly what's happening, but there is some attempt at conducting the practice with the presence of mind. And the other may be done just out of a knee-jerk reaction. And so I think it's easy for those of us who have actually engaged with any kind of magic or yogic practice, we know the before and after. When we've gone through the actions of the day without paying attention to exactly what we're doing, we're just going through the motions to get from part A to part B, part C, to get out of that miserable job that I hate and get home, or whatever the, may, the case may be. Um, that is all a conscious a consciousness influencing behavior pattern and there and and it is its own trance it's not necessarily a fun trance but it is a trance that is one that takes over uh actions uh, well it takes over thought processes and perhaps interferes with actually getting in touch with or interfacing with the will uh whereas with working with the meditation first thing in the day and conscious breathing, it's bringing the mind and awareness to the matter at hand. And instead of being controlled by the actions of the day, it's somewhat harnessing. I'm not saying that the act, that, that yoga, the use of yoga and magic can't, won't control your actions throughout the day, but at least you go into it with some modicum of, of awareness, of paying attention, of, of seeing how it actually pans out. And so that it becomes an act uh, more of a willful act as opposed to one where one is almost a bystander, where one is allowing the actual flow and dictation of duties, roles, persona that one has to assume to deal with one's job to dictate and to pull one through the day as, the, as basically the horse before the cart or the helmsman to some extent. Um, that to me is what uh, matters of the transfer about. And William Burroughs deals with it quite well. If you look at some of his uh, practices, I love my favorite one is do easy. It's, it's about efficient actions during the day. He talks about the fact when you, it, it, to do easy is to expend less energy. So just basic things in your room, instead of, wasting physical movement to do things. If you know exactly where things are placed and you can get to them without thinking about it or doing it in the least amount of movement, this is an act of willful, attentive action. And I guess my main concern is, is to get away from, the object is to get away from 
a situation where one has to react as opposed to acting. I think that's the big difference. Within that quotidian rat race trance, there, there's an awful lot of reacting involved as opposed to active or activating uh, movement mm-hmm. through the day. So you're, you, would you say that you're in agreement with um, Gurdjieff that, that we're, all, we're mostly all asleep? Yeah, I would say to, to an extent. Uh, sure. Uh, I, try to, I try to do my best and, and I would have to stay. I, I still, I, get, I, I have flashes. <laughs> I find myself having flashes. Unfortunately, they're the minority of the day, you know. Uh, the more I keep at it, I have these little flashes where I feel, where I sense that I'm definitely waking up to a few things. Uh, unfortunately, they're the minority. Um, yes. Uh, so the idea of sleep, sleep as being a completely uh, a passive or uh, or something that is uh, is involved with what uh, Spare talked about, the, the Thanatos factor. One either harnesses that will towards uh, death, uh, or in the Freudian sense of uh, of the orgasm, or the termination, uh, or cessation of certain things. Either one can become aware of it uh, and harness it, or uh, or it just skates right past us. Uh, I, I don't even really know how, how else to put it. It's, it's just, it's very easy for it to glide by as, as unnoticed. Do you think that's where some of the, the hostility towards magic and occultism comes from then is that people don't want, don't want to admit that perhaps there's more to life than what they are, they are accepting. Uh, without a doubt. Uh, and that reminds me when that, workshop that I'd given in San Diego, somebody was talking about his sigilization is magic safe. Uh, and my response is emphatically, it is anything but safe. There is nothing safe at all about magic, because if you get to an extent, if you get to a point where you, even if you have a flash of realization, that little bit of realization can be an awfully dangerous or an upsetting thing in the face of the way maybe one has conducted the rest of one's life. And you have to say to yourself, if you have woken up to a certain thing, is there any way of turning back? And I think a lot of people, and and that's where you hear certain horror stories about some people who've engaged in magic or the occult, and they've lost their marbles or they've committed suicide or whatever. And that only comes, but I think in that case, I think what we're talking about is, is trying to deny, is trying to operate and to uh, and function in a state of self-denial once one has actually come to a realization. Uh, so it's not a comfortable thing. I think from the outside, I think from reading, you know, as we read, if somebody uh, has an inclination and they read books and they read accounts, those accounts that, uh, are one thing. The experiences that one actually goes through are often quite a different matter altogether. And I don't think much prepares us for that. Uh, it is uh, magic and uh, and illumination can be an extremely unsettling process for some. Um, and um, I'm not sure that a lot of texts, it is dealt with by a number of people fairly well, but maybe it's not emphasized as much as it needs to be. So you think there's an element of 
sort of sunk cost in there, especially for those people who do uh, sort of infamously lose their minds or, or go awry. It's because they were, they were sort of, they held that diehard position of what they were in was so normal because there was this finally this tiny crack in their reality. It was too much. Well, the word you two held, the problem is, is holding on. Is this, uh, if one, the, the danger of doing a purely Western magical approach, if one doesn't have some sort of, I think, a, 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 a gear within the practice of a, a, a passivity that Taoism or maybe a yogic uh, or Buddhist approach can help give that when people know that it's like, okay, something's happening, I'm not sure if I need to relax and kick back and observe rather than, oh, I'm not in control right now. This is not a good thing. Uh, it's that holding on to the way things were before, and it's the resistance that one builds up, the old Taoist thing. Uh, the tree that bends in the wind, you know, flexes and gives. The one that stands rigid is the one that typically breaks. Uh, and so it's the inflexibility. Um, and, oh, let's face it, I mean, coming from the West, if you just look at how education and everything is geared, uh, there's not much room or or place given to any idea of sort of this flexible, passive approach with any sort of curriculum. And it makes for an awfully difficult um, uh, growing process for many kids. I know it was for me. <laughs> it was terrible. Had I not found magic, I probably would have lost my mind because none of it makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, if that is all one gears oneself towards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, so one thing, one thing we could chat about is uh, I believe you, you told me that you're working on a new, a new book. Oh yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. Could you let us know what this is, this is about? Sure. Uh, it's, going to be the the second volume uh in in the series sacred alignments but actually this one the title i'm probably going to go with is the etheric alignments because the first book uh deals in large one of the actual elements of the scaffolding of the first book is the 18 calls of the elements mm -hmm. uh from the Zenokian system uh, it's not the core of it but it's part of the scaffolding the second book, I'm dealing with the notion of the ethers, uh, drawing from John Dee's Call to the 30 Ethers. But what got me going with, because there's a lot more being written about it, and I said to myself, um, do we really need another book about the magic of the 30 ethers? And then I said to myself, what is it that seems to be missing from the formula? And so I've just... I've gone back and I've asked some very basic questions, which I'm pursuing. What did the ether mean to John D? I said that because as hard and as long as I've looked, I haven't found anybody who's actually grappled with that question. And so going back to his library, of course, we first see a mention of it in, in Aristotle. Uh, the ether as being that fifth element, uh, the binding element. Uh, that helps to hold all the other elements together. It's sort of that substrata, that that asomatic, that that uh, 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 that metaphysical component 
that is the bulwark of the physical world of physics. Um, the term, uh, the basic term itself, actually, the Greek I, I fear means running, always running, always moving. Um, and so, uh, looking at the way the you know the way the thirty ethers are set up. I looked at them and I and I asked some other questions. There's uh, there's governors to the ethers, and so what could these governors actually mean? Not too many people talk about that aspect of them. And then so I saw a connection with uh, the Chaldean interpretation of uh, the uh, the Chaldean cosmology. There between the Empyrean and the physical world is the etheric realm. Within that realm are the three elements of the uh, of the ions, the synox, and the teletars. Now Crowley mentions those three elements in his uh, in, in this uh, in his banishing ritual, the pentagram. Um, but he doesn't go into any great detail. And as it turns out, the ions was actually a bird. Uh, uh, the Rhineck, um, and it was considered to be an, an oracular bird within the Chaldean context, Ionx is considered the voice of God itself. And so I saw these, I, I looked at these Chaldean components and I said, okay, what, where may D have accessed this? And even though the Chaldean oracles weren't well known, but they were known indirectly within D's world. And then it became more and more incumbent upon my studies. I could see it was all the Neoplatonic sources that would have been through uh, Michael Sellis. It would have been through Porphyry and especially Proclus and Yambla, because that was where D was getting all this from. And then it took me a while. I was lucky. I had the opportunity before the shutdown about a year ago to, uh, to go into a few uh, special collections and look at some of John Dee's notations to his um, Neoplatonic texts. And uh, there it was with, uh, within one of the, I actually saw Dee had underlined with, within one of these texts, the term Fantasticon Numa Vehicula, the, the pneumatic or spiritual vehicle of the divine imagination of the soul. So Dean knew about this. Dean knew about this connection within the ancient world. So it wasn't just something he picked out of thin air. And Sir Edward Kelly is sitting there. He's exposed to these books. He's listening to D. There's a close relationship between them. And there is no doubt that this had an impact upon Kelly's visions of the, the, the whole phenomenon itself. Uh, and so... This is what I'm working on right now. Uh, I think it's the great lacuna in these studies. It's the big gap that hasn't been filled. Uh, I've worked through the 30 ethers. And part of what I'll be doing in the book, as I said, part of I'm going to I'm asking the basic question about what the ethers meant to be. I'm also then going to discuss my own findings because mine were very different from what I saw with Crowley and some others have gone through because I saw working through each of the, it took me over six years to get through the 30 ethers because I didn't see it as a one and do the ritual and then as a one and done. It did not work that way for me at all. I would only work with one when my dreams started to point me in that way. So I would have dreams before I'd meditate on them. 
I would work with uh, dawn meditations. Then eventually when I would do the uh, call, I would perceive certain things, but then also my dreams were dictating things to me also. So I had to take that into account. So it became a fairly complex, but as I said, it's part of what, I, what I'm capturing in the book is the idea is that the ether has something that is constantly running, constantly moving, that this has become for me a process, which is one that even though I can track down the ontology in the beginning of it, uh, it is something that now that I become immersed in it, it is something that's ongoing. It's, it's not necessarily, it, it has not come to a terminus. It's only been the beginning phase of, of a way of thinking of, of, of a type of consciousness. And so it's been exciting and I'm enjoying it. And hopefully it will, it will appeal to a certain readership that, that's looking for a different approach. Um, is there anything you, you would like to, to add or, or mention that we, that we haven't spoken about? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, it's been a great interview, uh, and uh, you've helped to get me to rethink a number of things I hadn't thought about. Uh, I could always sit here and ramble away uh, for hours on end, but I think we've covered a sufficient amount of <laughs> to provide ample food of thought at this point, James. Yeah, okay, it should be a good place to finish up. Thanks for thanks for uh, coming on. You're most welcome. This was uh, quite enjoyable.